0: this season of the vmp anthology podcast is sponsored by marantz a great balance of warmth and smoothness while maintaining tons of details it's basically responsible for playing the soundtrack to my childhood these are real words spoken by real marantz fans who are some of the most passionate audio lovers in the world when you spin vinyl on a marantz turntable connected to a marantz hi-fi system you'll understand why marantz is one of the most legendary hi-fi companies of all time And why their fans are so passionate about that warm, rich, legendary Morantz sound. Check out all the latest Morantz gear at morantz.com. That's M A R A N T Z.com. Or see what their fans have to say at hashtag whyMorantz. Welcome back to this, the second episode of VMP Anthology, The Story of Stax Records. I'm your host, Andrew Winnestorfer. In this episode, we get to business, since time is tight, and discuss the first two LPs in your VMP Anthology box set, Booker T and the MGs' Soul Dressing and Sam and Dave's Hold On, I'm Coming. We introduced you to Booker T and the MGs during our last episode, but here we get into the group's history and Soul Dressing specifically. Later this episode, I sit down with one of the songwriters of most of Sam and Dave's iconic songbook. But first, we pick up with Booker T and the MGs after Green Onions came out. Within a few months of Green Onions becoming a hit, as we outlined in the last episode, the group recorded the first charting LP in Stax history, and the first LP released under the Stax banner, Green Onions. It's hard to overstate how important the band would become. Not only were they a hugely successful enterprise in their own right, they also played on every Stax album you can think of in that early period. As I mentioned last episode, they play on five of the eight albums included in this box set, including Soul Dressing, the second Booker T in the M.G.'s LP. While Green Onions was stretched to LP length by a bevy of covers, Soul Dressing is 11 originals and one cover a remarkable feat for a band that at that point was playing on everything from Wilson Pickett, Sam and Dave, and Otis Redding records, to Carla and Rufus Thomas and William Bell records. But just as Green Onions became a hit, Booker T. Jones made a decision that seems crazy in retrospect. He left Memphis to go to school at the University of Indiana. As he outlines in this interview segment, and in his new biography, Time is Tight, that decision was actually an easy one, and led to the group coming up with the title track to Soul Dressing. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the record that I'm you know we're doing in our box set is soul dressing. Mm-hmm. And the way you kind of get there is when green onions is this massive big hit, you make the very controversial decision, at least amongst the guys in the band, mm-hmm. to go to Indiana University. Mm-hmm. Can you talk me through, like you mentioned last night that like there was always the assumption you were gonna go to college and mm-hmm. you just felt like you were gonna you were gonna go do that. Can we talk through, like what, what did the other guys in the band think of that decision at the time? Well, I
1: started making preparations before I, um, uh, got to uh, stacks. I started making preparations to go to Indiana when I was in 10th grade, started studying for the, uh, the college entrance exam, the national exam. And, um, uh, and I started saving money because it was an expensive school. I was out of state. Um, and I made uh, a deposit, you know, that spring before we recorded green onions, uh, Uh, with the uh, Indiana University, Um, and it was a large deposit. It was over $400, um, and uh, it came from uh, years of saving, you know, dimes and pennies in my paper route uh, Mm -hmm. around Memphis. And um, my family, uh, my grandfather had established pretty much a legacy of of his kids. He wanted his kids to be educated for for the obvious reasons. He had built a school uh, on his property down in uh, Mississippi that children were going to, and he had gotten a college degree. He was literate. And he, all four of his kids went to college, my father and uh, my mother. And so it was, uh, it was my legacy. It, it, was, it was expected of me to go to college. However, the main reason I went to college was that I needed to know what was happening in my head with music. I couldn't write music. I didn't know the, the names to call the notes. And I was getting a pretty good education at uh, Booker Washington. But uh, I, the, the information that I got in Indiana was irreplaceable. And I knew it would be. Uh, Hoagie Carmichael had written Stardust. He went to school there. He was one of my idols. And um, so the decision was controversial uh, at the least. Uh, we were, had a record that was just the beginning to climb up the charts. And uh, it was assumed, uh, you know, when the Marquees had a hit, they just traveled all over the United States and, and made money and promoted the record. And it was assumed Booker T and the MGs would do that. So. For me to decide at that point that I wasn't going to do that and take off and go to enroll in in September at Indiana was just uh, not a well not well received.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're driving back and forth between Indiana on the weekends to come back mm-hmm. to to cut sessions. And that's you say in the book that's when you came up with Soul Dressing. The riff on there mm-hmm. was you're in the car in between. Mm-hmm. So you want to talk through you know figuring that riff out and well, yeah, it might've been a good thing
1: that I was driving so much because ideas came to me when I was driving in the car. Maybe it was the motion, you know, the sound, but yeah, that, I remember that particular one coming into my head when I was driving uh, north to Indiana.
0: Mm -hmm. And so what was the recording process like when you would come back for those weekends? You know, like you made the whole album soul dressing, like while you were coming back and forth between school, like, what did that, did you feel like a lot of, like, I got to get in and we got to cut a bunch of songs every weekend or?
1: Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Directly to the studio. Uh, that was my first destination when it came down Thomas Avenue off highway 51. It was right to the studio and, uh, right in. And sometimes they would have an idea. Sometimes usually they'd ask me for an idea, but I would have one cause I've been driving, <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah, we recorded late into the night o- over the weekend. And, um, I just knew that road so well. I just, uh, uh, back and forth on highway 37 down to Paducah and Tennis. No, not Franklin but uh, uh, all, right, right down through um, uh, uh, Millington and right on down to uh, Third Street and and stacks Mclemore Avenue
0: mm-hmm. um, One of the things that's been interesting as I've done you know more of these interviews and then reading in your book too is like how much improv really was kind of, Playing, you guys called it head charts, or mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. that you don't really hear like the Stax band ref- like talked about like you know jazz combos that are in the studio improving. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of ways, you guys are you're improving. You know, mm-hmm. you're like figuring this stuff out on the fly. Mm-hmm. Um, how mm-hmm. much did the musical theory then play into that you're getting in Indiana play into like what you were able to do in the studio then when you would come back?
1: I think it 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 had its percentage uh, that it didn't have before through me. And um, I became a kind of a, um, a structured musician from the composition that I was learning, the rules that I was learning, uh, you know, uh, the theory rules, the contrapuntal rules. And I think it just kind of seeped through me and in the way when people would ask me, well, what chord should we go to next? Or what should this pattern be? I think it seeped through me. Uh, uh, a number of the musicians at Stax, although we did head arrangements, they read music. Uh, uh, Floyd Newman, uh, Gilbert Caples, uh, uh, Andrew Love—they all read music. They—they they were uh, trained musicians, al- although it wasn't used at stacks. Many times, the artists, like Rufus Thomas, would go over to the horn section and hum the lines he wanted them to play. And Otis especially did that. And that—that that happened all around Memphis in the clubs, you know. Um, the uh, but Manassas High School was a very uh, cerebral school as far as. Uh, teaching music goes all the bands there would sit with music on their stands and a lot of the big jazz bands came out of that area so it was a combination
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sure um so in the late 60s uh you decide you're going to go live in california Mm -hmm. um and leave memphis to try to you know figure things out Mm -hmm. um and one of the things you kind of talk about in the book is just that it was that was the way you felt you could be like your own artist, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. how much did you guys feel like boxed in at having to be the house band at Stax?
1: It was uh like you said, boxed in. There were um I, I don't think that uh I would have recorded uh Willie Nelson's Stardust album at Stax. I think they would have I think it would have been too far out of the the, the norm. I don't think I would have done Earl Klug's uh, magic in your eyes at stacks um, and I'm and and I might have been able to get Bill Withers into stacks but in California I had the freedom to make those decisions for myself I was my own producer uh, the work that I did with uh, you know Leon Russell and uh, just uh, just out of out of the genre artists um, just would have been kind of out of place I don't think they would have fallen on uh, on deaf ears here at stacks, but it would have been a, a struggle at certain times. I mean, after all, we did we passed on. Well, never mind.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, you can. <laughs> who'd you pass on?
1: Uh, Aretha Franklin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and but but record companies do that though. That's that's a trap they fall into. I mean, we had we have uh, the first label in in Hollywood. They passed on the Beatles. So, so, mm-hmm. and, you know, you never really know. And right. sometimes they just don't have the money to sign these artists. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, I had a freedom out there that, that I didn't have here because I, I went totally jazz out there and, and at times I went totally country and I went totally rock mm-hmm. and uh, so it, 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 I had the freedom to do that and you know, I worked with, with Bob and I worked with the band and Bob Dylan and mm-hmm. you know, people like that
0: Yeah, and that if they're saying no to Aretha Franklin over on Macklemore Avenue here and maybe not getting Willie in there then... While the group would go down as the most important soul band of all time, they worked in the studio like an improv jazz group, working on what they called head arrangements, ad-libbing riffs and parts until they had songs. Here, Steve Cropper remembers the group's recording process and his approach to guitar solos, which he had on most stack singles in those days. So you guys have Green Onions as your first full LP, um, but then Soul Dressing is in our box set. So I want to talk a little bit about
2: that like, Yeah, I
0: still remember it. Um, so when you guys like, went into the studio to do that, was there ever like, a moment where it's like, it's time to do well, this? Well,
2: the career of Booker T and EMGs, it did last. But we had, I think, a total of close to 17 artists on the label. That's a lot of work. So when it came time to may- maybe come out with a different single, if we'd run out of ideas or singles from albums that we did, uh, we would designate a day, usually a Monday, an- sort of a- almost an off day, every two or three months for Booker the EMGs. Okay. You'd think with a group that sold as many records as we did that it would be <laughs> a whole week or a whole month of recording Booker T. no. Uh-uh. We'd hit one session about every two or three months. That'd be about it.
0: For Soul Dressing, like, and I guess in general, like, how did you approach your guitar solos? Because like a lot of the songs on Soul Dressing, I can't play
2: solo.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you can though. You solo on
2: mindless, like... I guess. I don't know.
0: You don't. The it...
2: funny thing is, for me, I know what I played, and when I have to re- rehearse each one of them mm-hmm. to try to get the same bends and whatever, and it's not easy. And uh, I remember talking with Steve Vai one time, and I said he played the, it was in that movie, Crossroads. Oh yeah. And I said, okay, you played with us now, I've gotta ask you a personal question, you don't have to answer it. How did you make that sound so big? And he looked at me, he said, Steve, I tripled it. <laughs> I tripled it? How'd you do that, note for note? It's pretty busy stuff. But it made it sound that big, mm-hmm. you know, made it sound like he had monster strings or something. So it was hard for me to just uh, come up with the same feel and intention, I guess, on the solos. And I'm not one of those guys that plays a different solo every time. Once I learn it, that's that's the way I do it. You know? I do it the same way every time, pretty much.
0: Mm-hmm. And so you were just like, how do you think you got to the point where you're able to just like ad lib these solos? I don't think club? I'm there yet. <laughs> <laughs>
2: be up there going man you should have played so-and-so you should have played so-and-so and and you didn't I don't know and I know what's happened to me now with my age is that my brain still works and it tells my hands what they need to do my hands don't respond like they used to Mm -hmm. so it's it's not hard playing some of the uh, things you've been playing all your life
3: Mm
2: -hmm. you know because people want to hear the hits and some of the new stuff, I don't know. I mean I sit in with people every, every now and then and I am not I've never been known for long solos. They always pretty really compact. Yeah, they're pretty compact, compact and quick and and I think they're more melodic. It's not about playing, it's about playing something that relates to the song or to the artist or whatever. And I used to do that as a session player. A lot of session players don't do that. That's fine. But that's what I did. I would either complete and add something to when the singer stopped singing the lyrics, I would do something that sort of implied that and all that.
0: Original bassist Louis Steinberg would leave the group after Soul Dressing, and was replaced with Duck Dunn, who'd play with the group for the rest of their run on stacks. Booker T and the MGs were mainstays at the label until the late 60s, when Booker T decided he no longer wanted to be kept in the studio and wanted to take more artistic chances than he was allowed, telling his bandmates they'd never be treated as serious artists if they were also the house band. He'd keep recording albums as an M.G. for a few years and help produce William Bell records, but left the label for good in the early 70s. Cropper made an underrated solo LP and an album with Pop Staples and Albert King called Jam Together which is the only guitar supergroup album released under the Stax umbrella. Dunn would more or less retire from music in the 70s after Stax closed, taking spot reunion shows with the MGs and with the Blues Brothers when the opportunity struck. Jackson, in addition to producing and playing at Stax very nearly until its end in 1975, also played across town at High Records, co-writing mega-hits for Al Green like Let's Stay Together, Call Me, and I'm Still in Love With You. He died a few months before Stax closed its doors, under mysterious circumstances. He was shot five times in his home by an alleged home invader, who tied his wife up, ransacked his house, and murdered Jackson. Police seemed skeptical of Jackson's wife's story. There was no real proof the house had actually been robbed, and it seemed like an organized hit and Jackson had been shot by his wife during a domestic dispute just a few months earlier. But there was never enough evidence to charge anyone, and since the case is still open, there's no statute of limitations on murder after all, no one can actually see the case file. The murder was one more black cloud hanging over Stax in late 1975, before the label would close up shop at the end of the year. Without the MGs, it's possible that there's no Stax records, no Otis Redding, no box set commemorating the label, and certainly not this podcast. As Atlantic made sure to put Stax Records into record stores far outside the Mid-South region, the label's genius record producer, Jerry Wexler, who'd been working on setting up a soul wing of Atlantic's roster, couldn't get the right soul sound for his own artists in New York. Wexler had recently signed a pair of wild men from an unlikely place, Miami, Florida, and couldn't hit upon anything approaching what Stewart and the MGs were doing in Memphis. So he had a novel idea. He'd lease the new group to Stax, where the group would record, and the Stax team would write songs and develop the group, and Stax would release the group's albums with heavy Atlantic distribution. Stewart was reluctant at first, but ultimately decided the relationship with Atlantic could be strengthened if the Stax team could, like they'd also do with Wilson Pickett, lend their sound to an artist outside of the Macklemore Avenue family. The group Atlantic leased to Stax was, of course, Sam and Dave. Sam Moore was a teenage delinquent and often runaway known to law enforcement around South and Central Florida for his penchant for petty crimes like pimping and theft. He, like many of the artists in the Stacks fold, started singing in church before he broke bad, and only decided to become a professional singer when he realized that it paid pretty great as a hustle if you could get steady gigs. He was luckily blessed with one of the rawest, dust on the floor voices in the history of soul music, a voice that still sounds present today, but which also carried with it all the styles and tones and trauma of black music throughout history. He was a solo act and an MC at a nightclub when a baker, fresh off of his shift, signed up to sing a Jackie Wilson song at an open mic Sam was hosting. When signing up, the baker told Sam that he didn't know all the words and was wondering if Sam could back him up. Sam didn't know all the words either, but backed him up anyway. When the baker, a country boy named Dave Prater, Accidentally knocked over the mic stand while performing, Sam dove for it, caught it, and hit his note on cue. Everyone in attendance thought the performance was choreographed, and it crackled with raw electricity, and a manager approached the duo to ask them to perform less than two weeks later at a different club. Sam and Dave were born, never quite friends, never quite enemies. They would remain together for a tumultuous few years of stardom, even if their singing never quite made sense. They weren't really singing in harmony. When they sang together, though, it coalesced into a third voice, one that neither could achieve alone. When Sam and Dave showed up at Stax Studios, Stewart paired them with two locals who just started writing songs together. An eccentric known for wearing weird colors, Isaac Hayes, and David Porter, who'd been hanging out at Stax and the record store asking for work in between shifts at the grocery store down the block. Hayes and Porter would write all of Sam and Dave's best-known hits both men launching their own solo careers off the success of The Elder Duo. The first mega-hit for Sam & Dave was Hold On, I'm Coming, written by Hayes and Porter during a long night at the studio. The single ended up hitting number one on the R&B charts and 21 on the pop charts, which was a huge accomplishment for a regional soul label at that point in music history. The album, Hold On, I'm Coming, the 11th LP in the history of Stax, and included in your VMP Anthology box set, was one of the first LP successes in Stacks history, going number one on the R&B album charts as the era of the album descended, and the label became more focused on delivering not only crackling soul singles, but also full LPs. We chose it for Anthology because it represents the early days of the Stack sound coalescing, thanks to the playing from the MGs, the singing of Sam and Dave, and the rising Hayes and Porter duo. Sam and Dave would release two more LPs on Stax before Atlantic and Stax's relationship ended, peaking with 1967's Soul Man. They'd have numerous acrimonious fights, including one where Sam had to sue Dave for touring with a different singer named Sam, and never really recaptured their Stax glory, not even after the Blues Brothers basically turned their act into a comedy routine. Prater died in 1988 when he fell asleep at the wheel of his car when driving home to see his mom after a gig. Sam and Dave live on in the amber of their early days, hitting their perfect lockstep moves over 12 tracks of gold. In this segment, I sit down with David Porter at his Made in Memphis Entertainment Studios to talk about how he and Isaac Hayes were the only songwriters jumping at the opportunity to work with Sam and Dave when they got to Memphis, and how even though the singers hated each other, they should be thankful the other existed. When Sam and Dave got to Stacks, what did you and, like, the guys there, like, make of them?
3: Well, you have to understand, when Sam and Dave came to Stacks, it wasn't like there was a big fanfare, a lot of interest or anything like that. Uh, Jerry Wexler bought them down, um, and um, and they were... I, I, I don't want to make it sound any less than what, what it was, but they were not a point of emphasis at that time, so... Uh, you know, it was like, uh, this is Sam and Dave. We'd love for you guys to consider working with them. Now, the you guys wasn't Isaac and I at the time. It was just you guys, the, the staff at Stax Records. It was, the, the you know, the rhythm section and all that. So it was actually who would take it on to do it. And I asked if I could, in fact, do it. And so no one objected because no one really thought that much about anything relating to to the guys. Now it wasn't because they were not good. They were good. It's just that that no one was taking the lead to move forward on them. So I asked if I could do it. I was given the opportunity to do it. So if you go by the original records released on Sam and Dave and you you go to chronology of, of what the re- releases were, you'd find the first record was a song called A Place Nobody Can Find. And the B side of that was "Good Night, Baby. Well, if you look at A Place Nobody Can Find, The writer of the song was David Porter, 100%. The producer of the song was David Porter. But during that time, um, Jim wasn't on point of putting the producers' credits as they should on record. So that wasn't there. The B-side was a song called Goodnight, Baby, which uh, I approached Steve to work with me on. And so the writers on that was was Steve Cropper and David Porter. But that was the first record. So it was not a lot of interest in, in Sam and Dave, but I felt... Uh, very much uh, interested in the respect that I wanted to have an opportunity to, to work with an artist to build from the ground up, and it was doing at, at that period that I thought in terms of approaching Isaac, and let's let's get together on them. But that was the entr- entrance into Stacks Records. That was as as low key as as an interest could be for someone who became such major mega stars as they became.
0: Right. Yeah. They eventually become like maybe next to Otis, like the biggest. No, no doubt. Yeah. No the doubt. Biggest thing. And so why did you go to Isaac?
3: Like what... Well, Isaac and I had, had, had been talking in terms of uh, collaborating, um, but it really got serious, serious with me at the point of seeing what the opportunity could have been for Sam and Dave. And so uh, I was looking for an opportunity to, to create an identity in a creative sense, writers and producers of, was so excited and motivated by what Motown was doing through Holland, Doja Holland, as was Isaac. So we both were motivated by that. So we talked in terms of, let's try to create our own flavor, our own style. And the greatest example of what we could use to do that in our sight at that particular time was Sam and Dave. So it was, it was a matter of, he was an opportunity to create a sound and an identity. He was an artist that was willing to work hard with that. So we, we began the relationship. And uh, that relationship involved, if you go back to the times of stacks, we had baffles that you, we didn't have all the sonic kind of compliments that are in studios today. And so we would have a microphone sitting uh, in, 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 in front of a baffle. And I would be on one side of the mic and, and Sam and Dave would be on another. And I would direct like a choir uh, we would work up the arrangements for the songs inside of the room, with a full understanding of what we would want to do. And Isaac was amazing at horn lines, and rhythm underlines. And so we worked together in such a way that that I was great at at coming up with some parts as well, but he was amazing in that regard. And so we just started with a song called "You Don't Know Like I Know," and which was a a a, a song that really a origi- the theme of it re- originated out of church a church song you don't know like i know what the lord has done for me <laughs> and so we actually wrote the song you don't know like i know which was the first initial national chart record on salmon and day and uh
0: you guys sort of became like famous at the studio for how hard you were working writing for them that you were like sleeping in the studio at times right
3: We were so passionate about having success and creating an identity, not only for the talent, but for us, that we were working at finding ways in order to effectively do that. So we would spend hours upon hours inside of that studio. And during the course of that, we were coming up with a more succinct sound concept for what we wanted to do for Sam and Dave. And so with that in mind, we were thinking about all kinds of ways to do that. Uh, So much so until the horn line that you hear on the record of Hold On, I'm Coming, that horn line was created two or three weeks before. Isaac just put the horn line down with the musicians because there was another session going on, and he heard this riff, this horn riff, and he said, guys, let's put this down on tape for me. And he put the horn line of that, that what ultimately became the horn line on Hold On, I'm I'm, I'm Coming, down before we wrote the song, before there was any idea about writing the song.
0: That's how active you guys were in the studio. That's
3: how like. much we were in the studio trying to find ways and methods to be more effective in a more creative sense about what we were doing.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and so one night you guys are at the studio and uh, the story, do you <laughs> want to tell me the story of well, Hold on, I'm we i Well,
3: we were at the studio. We were trying to find a follow-up to You Don't Know Like I Know. And so we were at the studio, as we did most days working very, very late into the morning. We'd start, because sessions would go on during the day, and then we'd start in the evening time with the piano that was inside of Studio A. We didn't have a Studio B or C or anything at that time. Mm-hmm. And so we would be in the studio working, and we would, uh, in in this sense, we were working about 1.30 uh, in the morning. I had to go to the restroom, and I, and, and during that time, uh, those who are familiar with the visual of Stack Studios, you would know that it was an old movie theater. And being an old movie theater from, from years uh, back, uh, the restrooms in the movie theaters back in those days were right at the— f- as soon as you walk into the theater, at the door was a restroom. <clears throat> and you would walk down a slope floor and look up at the screen, and that was the screen. So people would ask to go to the restroom— without any intrusion or interruption in lights with their visuals of, because the restroom was sitting back there. So actually we were writing one night that night and the piano was at the other end of the floor. I was in the restroom. I had to go to the restroom and Isaac was rushing me to come out of the restroom. And I screamed at him, hold on, I'm coming, man. And it was like a light went off (laughs) in my head and I came out of the studio uh, Isaac said, "I came out with my pants down." That's not true. Okay,
0: <laughs> correcting but, the record. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but
3: I did come out of the studio and said, "Hey, I, I, we got one." He said, "What?" I said, "Hold on, I'm coming." And then we talked about the concept of it, which we were talking about. Uh, well, we would we would have double meaning style songs, but the, but the initial thought in this one we we talked about Superman because during that time it was a TV show called Superman. So I, I said, "Let's make the theme around." The, the rescue thought of, of what Superman w- would reflect. And then, you know, let's make the meaning uh, in a spiritual way relatable to, to people in other ways. So we started on the song just like that because we discussed that part of it initially. And in 20 minutes, we had written a song. And Isaac said at that time, he said, man, uh, I got a horn riff that I did a couple of weeks ago with Andrew and Wayne. I think that would work perfect with this. And I said, "Well, let's 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 do it. Let's let's do it." So he played the riff. I said, "Man, this is perfect." So we then talked about the session. I had heard a record by an artist by the name of Lee Dorsey out of New Orleans, mm-hmm. and there was a record called "Get Out of My Life, Woman." And I, I so the day of the session. Uh, we would do head arrangements inside of the studio. The day of the sessions, I went to Al Jackson Jr. and asked him about if he knew the riff, the drum lick to Get Out of My Life Woman. He said he did. I said, can you play that spe- and speed it up? And he said, okay. So naturally, he played at the lick. You know, he played a, a rhythm that was more ma- major, more creative, such a, an amazing uh, drum pattern, uh, uh, more so than even Get Out of My Life Woman, the original record was. And so that was the drum beat. Of hold on, I'm coming, and the horn riff we already had, and so that template was what the rhythm track, the bass, and the guitar was built around. That that tempo that was set from the drum beat of that song.
0: Mm-hmm. Man, it just it's crazy to hear like the scraps of that coming together. You know that yes. you guys had all of these little pieces going. Yes, um, I want to sort of just quick talk about Sam and Dave because. One of the things that gets said about them all the time is that, like, they're a duo that didn't harmonize. But I don't know that, to me, like, they don't sound the same without each other in a way that, like, you can find somebody to sing, like, a high harmony. Right. And, like, but those two guys together, it was like they didn't have harmony, but they didn't sound the same together. What or is, a part that they did together.
3: When you said harmony, you mean as far as tone or you mean as far as personalities? What, what... <laughs> I mean like tone.
0: Like, you know, <laughs> that like they weren't they weren't like the, you know, the soulsters or something. They were like sort of shouting at each other. And like one of the phrases that gets thrown around a lot is that they were like combatants. Because they also like, you know, they didn't get along personally very well either. But I just, I think, I mean, you were in the studio with them. What was it like... Like watching them work together.
3: Well, not, not only was I in the studio, I was on the other side of the mic, going through the direc- direction thing with them. Uh, there was harmony with them, but there was what we call dissonant. There was a little bit of a, a, a dissonant kind of tones, but but there were harmonics. It, it was just the texture of Dave's voice along with Sam's. You could hear the harmon- harmony going, but it was it was a dissonant kind of kind of feeling. But you knew that there was a uniformity that they felt for each other that married the tone in such a way that it created a unique sound for them and the uniqueness uh, and the marketability of, of them as, as a duo lived in that world. The fact that there was a, a persona or a personality and a uniqueness in the way their, their voices blended, that was quite powerful, but the texture of it was was pleasing to the ear. When you would when they would have to do the one and three, the for the harmony a, a bit of it, uh, there was there was a, a, an essence of that there.
0: Okay. Um, when you're in the studio and you're like you're finishing the song, do you know that you got a hit in those
3: days? Well, actually, it it, it sounds very very strange to say that when, with Sam and Dave, we do when we had a record with Sam and Dave. After Hold On, I'm Coming hit, which we felt good about, we really felt good about it, but we didn't know it would become the massive hit record that it became, and it became this huge number one record. Now we got the template. Now we know what we have in Sam and Dave. So we would do material and knew that it was a hit record. Certainly we know Sam and Dave with, with, with Soul Man was a hit record. Matter of fact, we bet uh, Jim Stewart uh, that it would be a number one record. And he didn't believe it. Uh, He was hoping it would be, but he didn't believe it because I I said, look, Jim, I bet you $20,000 that that Soul Man would become a number one record. He says, I'll bet you. I said, shake. And he shook my hand. That was a mistake. (laughs) Because Soul Man became a number one pop record on Cashbox, no less, which is a very, at that time, difficult chart to get that kind of position on, uh, more so than Billboard magazine. Okay, and it w- became a number one record. We went back to went back to Jim and said, "Jim, yours twenty thousand dollars," and he acted like he didn't know what we were talking about, but he knew that if he wanted another hit record, he better pay, pay that twenty grand. He and he paid the twenty thousand dollars. <laughs> so, but yeah, we certainly did, and we knew so much so until we we there was a song called "You Got Me Humming." Uh, that was a song that Isaac and I said, let's have some fun and just do a silly song that could be a record on him. So we were playing around with uh, 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 just having fun off of the phrase of that. And we put harmony with it. We put a rhythm with it. And we put a story with it. And, and You Got Me Harmon became a major hit for them as well. So, yeah, we were very, very comfortable in knowing when we had a record on Sam and Dave. So much so until we know we wanted to create a closing song for their shows. And so we wrote the song, I Thank You, as a closer for their shows, and we knew that that was going to be a hit. Mm -hmm. We also decided that we needed a ballad hit for them to show variety inside of their their, their performances. So we wrote When Something Is Wrong With My Baby, and we knew that was going to be a hit. We wrote a song called Said I Wasn't Gonna Tell Nobody, and we knew that was not going to be a hit. So we tried to cut that several different times, and it never really worked. It's been on their records, and you can hear it on their records, but we were never satisfied with that record.
0: Yeah, it's... It's hard to think of, like, a, a pair, especially even at stacks, that, like, a producer and artist pair in those days that, like, you guys were so in locked, locked in with Sam and Dave.
3: Well, there was, there, was a, there was a personality and an individuality in each of them that uh, we felt was, was tremendously marketable. And we also felt that if you separated them from each other, you would not nearly have the impact uh, in an individual way that you'd have together. But together, it was amazing. So we were trying to be sure that everything that we created, we created the abilities to have each persona exemplified inside of the song. And that's why every one of the records, Sam had a part and Dave had a part separately. And then they came together on the hook lines. And, and that was the magic for the record. And it was intentional on our part to do it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, I honestly believe that uh, Sam Moore ought to be thankful to the creator upstairs that he had a Dave Prater in his life. And I also think that Dave, who is no longer with us, should feel the same about Sam mm-hmm. because that was magic when they were together.
0: So there we have it. The first two LPs in your Stacks Records box set. In next week's episode, we cover the third and fourth LP in your box set, two LPs by artists that are forever united in tragedy. Make sure you scan the QR code that came with your box set to get access to a whole bevy of written, video, and audio content me and the other content goons of I Me Please put together for you. Also, keep an eye out for live unboxings of each subsequent episode as well as every week I'll be doing an AMA where you can ask me anything you want, or you can yell at me for which Johnny Taylor album you think should have been included. See you next week. This season of the VMP Anthology Podcast was executive produced, written, and hosted by me, Andrew Winnesdorfer. It's produced by Gabe Harder. This episode's interviews were recorded at OAM Network in Memphis, with engineering by Gilworth, Made in Memphis Entertainment in Memphis, with engineering by Carrie Kernan, and at the 30 Tigers office in Nashville with engineering by Jim Hankey of the Vinyl Emergency Podcast. Voiceovers are engineered by Jonah Graber. Special thanks to Steve and Angel Cropper, Booker T, Nan, and Olivia Jones, the staff at 30 Tigers for letting me record in your conference room, Mr. David Porter, Crystal at Made in Memphis Entertainment, and Michelle Smith at Stacks. And remember, listen to more David Porter.